Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when a California law unsealed police misconduct records in 2019, it gave the public and the press a chance to see how the police police themselves, how complaints against officers involving use of force, sexual misconduct, or dishonesty are handled internally. For the past two years, NPR and KQED reporters have been requesting and analyzing these records, and their findings are the subject of a new podcast called On Our Watch. We'll find out what they learned about police discipline in California. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In May of 2016, when a woman complained that a California Highway Patrol officer in Los Angeles had propositioned her when she brought her car in for an inspection, her complaint set in motion an investigation that would ultimately find that the officer had propositioned or harassed at least 21 women before her. What did you mean when you asked her, when you told, suggested to her to get a motel room? What does that mean? To be intimate. That audio you're hearing is from On Our Watch, a new podcast that brings listeners into the rooms where officers are questioned and witnesses interrogated. NPR and KQED reporters have been collecting records like this to better understand what really happens during internal investigations of police that promise accountability. And joining me now are three members of the On Our Watch podcast team. Sandia Dirks is race and equity reporter for KQED and a reporter and producer for On Our Watch. Sandia, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Mina. It's good to be here. Also, Alex Emsley is with us, a reporter for KQED News and consulting editor for On Our Watch. Hi, Alex Emsley. Hi, Mina. And also Suki Lewis, a reporter for KQED and the host of the On Our Watch podcast. Hi, Suki Lewis. Hi. It's really great to have you all here because I remember seeing you in the hallways after you've poured over lots of 
police misconduct records and the looks on your faces because it was such intense work. But Suki, I just want to stay with this story about the CHP officer for a moment. It's from the second episode of the podcast. First, what did this episode want to examine? Well, we really wanted to look at not just kind of what police sexual misconduct looks like, um, but also how complaints are dealt with and how what accountability looks like. So how departments um, deal with allegations of sexual misconduct by their officers. And I think what the episode really um, kind of digs into is that whole process, like from the initial incident of misconduct through the reporting of it, through the um, discipline. And, you know, what we found, we were looking at these two cases, which are kind of on the lesser end of the power differential, where you have an uh, officer who's a front desk officer in one of the cases, or who is um, inspecting, doing vehicle inspections. So they're not in a position to necessarily affect an arrest, um, but they are in this heightened position of power. And because they're a police officer, there is um, just this kind of differential between them and members of the public they come into contact with. Yes. And so you can kind of imagine the, the scope of where things go from there um, up through an incar incarceration setting and um, look at how difficult it is for people to come forward and how scary that can be. And also how those complaints are um, treated and dealt with. Yes, you're talking about, um, well, I mean, one of the reasons related to this power differential uh, that this case was so fascinating when this woman came forward was the fact that there were so many people before her, it ultimately is discovered, who were treated this way by this officer. But it was her complaint that finally launched an investigation that discovered that. But one of the things that I was really struck by was how the woman who came in to file her complaint was treated by the other officers. First, you hear one of the officers basically saying, wow, this is highly unusual that we would hear something like this. And I'd like to play a little bit of that now. Just to tell you, this is highly unusual uh, for, for a citizen to tell me this uh, uh, with this officer. I just, I'm not saying I don't believe you. I was just saying it's very uh, out there. You know, it's very out in left field for this exchange to happen. So, um, no, but I, I don't, I don't lie. I no, tell I, you exactly what he said. I, I don't believe you're lying to me. But understand that this is very uh, unusual. So. Suki, can you tell me what, what you thought when you heard the officer sort of beginning that way after the, the woman complained? Well, I mean, I think that this is what is so powerful about getting the audio tapes themselves is that you can hear these kind of um, tonal inflections that wouldn't come through if you're just reading an investigative report, right? And so you can kind of hear doubt in the officer's voice and like not to project too much on it because I think the tape speaks for itself. But what really stood out to me as well was this woman and her, um, I don't know, her just very centeredness in coming forward. And she was not going to be kind of dissuaded or put off. Like she kind of just comes back very strong and is like, no, this is wrong. Like I, I should not be treated like this. And I know exactly what's going on here. You know, yes. even though she is, you know, primarily Spanish speaking woman and is in this, um, you know, relative 
lesser position of power with these officers. Um, and so I thought that her kind of courageousness was really um, stood out as well, uh, even in the face of kind of questioning and doubt. And, you know, they go on to question her sobriety and so forth. Yes, she is not dissuaded, even when they begin to ask her if she's been drinking alcohol. We actually have a cut of that as well. Let's just hear a little bit of that, too. Ma'am, did you have any alcohol to drink last night? Nothing oh, sir. I don't drink alcohol. I don't make drugs. I don't no smoke. Okay. I have four kids. I'm mother for four kids. Okay. He doesn't drop the issue. I'm just going to let the next minute of the interview play out. I just, uh, I... I feel like I smell some alcohol in here, and I don't. I'm, I mean, no disrespect or anything, but I just—that's why I asked. No, I'm not. You, you haven't had something to drink in the last twelve hours. Okay. Can I? Uh, I'm just gonna walk over there. I'm gonna have you follow yeah. my finger. Yes. Yeah. Sure. We can leave my thumb here. Oh uh, no! I, this will just be right here. I was just gonna have you follow my finger with your eyes. Try not to move your head, okay? Okay, thank you, ma'am. We're listening to audio from the second episode of On Our Watch, which examines the system of accountability for officers who abuse their power for sex. Uh, And uh, Sandia Dirks, the officer that they're discussing with this audio tape and the woman who comes forward, that happened in Los Angeles. But you also investigated an incident or multiple incidents that happened in Northern California as well. Can you just share briefly what you looked into? Uh, Sure. Um, The story, you know, I think was one of the things that was interesting about this other story is that the patterns between what happened in LA and what happened um, in Northern California. The story itself is about a front desk officer who basically kind of used his position to get women's numbers. Um, And not just to get women's numbers and to get them to give them his numbers, but also to look up women's numbers using police databases, which Mm. is not a legal thing to do. Um, So uh, it is a, a, he he entered into several uh, uh, sort of relationships through this way, flirting with women, and it was extracurricular. He was married. He also used his um, his uh, work computer and email uh, to contact these women and to pursue these affairs. But not all of them were consensual. And we found one woman who basically felt uh, that this man was stalking her, that he was harassing her, pestering her, sending her unwanted dick pics, sending her unwanted sexual messages and explicit things, and that he wouldn't let go, and that she felt like she couldn't say no. She couldn't, you know, uh, just say, go away, because he was a police officer. And imagine the kind of power when someone sends you dick pics and it's not just some random person. I mean, that's already kind of an intrusion. But imagine if it's a police officer and how much extra power uh, and fear that might bring. So would you say that the these officers' behavior based on the records that you looked at were anomalies? I mean, why did you choose these in particular, Stondia Dirks? Well, I think... I think one of the reasons Suki and I chose these cases is actually is, is because they very much weren't anomalies, but also because these cases were, as as Suki said, some of the sort of least extreme. These are cases, while terrible and you know should never happen in in many ways, you, what you have is is much 
milder cases, harassment or people abusing the power of their badge to get people's numbers or that that kind of thing. We also found cases that were very, very disturbing, uh, um, cases of violent sexual assault, cases that were really, really troubling. And we chose these cases because in some ways, these are so familiar to so many women. These These encounters are things that every woman has has gone through, right? But what it means when it, you go through it with the police officer and that extra power is added is such an incredible kind of turn and puts you in such a position of, of weakness and vulnerability. And that's why we chose these cases, because you don't need to go to the most extreme cases which exist. You can just look at the way this power manip- you know, basically is abused and the power of the badge is abused in order to try and pursue women and in some cases to harass and stalk them. And through that process, when you say it's something that's so familiar for women, in a way, you're also trying to get at what are sort of the cultural norms that are in place that may allow for this to be such a frequent occurrence. Alex Emsley, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, just a few years ago, none of you would have had access to any of these records. Can you talk about what changed in 2018? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and all of us, uh, all of the three people uh, here today and, and many of the members of the Honor Watch team, we've been um, covering criminal justice and policing and issues of policing account- uh, accountability for a long time, um, going back, you know, 10 years, most of us. And for all of that period, for actually about 40 years in California, all of this um, internal information, police personnel information, uh, whether an officer was ever disciplined and how an internal investigation was carried out was um, completely confidential under California law. Um, There had been over uh, more recent history, a few attempts at the legislature to change that, to to allow some access that just simply went nowhere. Um, Those laws did not pass. And I, and I think others of us had become somewhat cynical figuring this was just going to be sort of the state of play in California for, um, you know, forever. Um, but something did change in 2018. And a lot of times we reference the um, killing of Stephon Clark in Sacramento, kind of in legislators' backyards, um, that uh, led to the passage of this landmark police transparency law. Now, it doesn't let us see everything, um, far from it. But access to cases of sexual assault, that's also defined as harassment or propositioning members of the public, um, serious use of force cases, including all shootings and those where people are severely injured, and uh, dishonesty, lies by police officers that can have a major effect on people's lives, criminal charges against them. And we'll learn more about that after the break. We're talking about what we're learning about how police are investigated and held accountable for misconduct in California. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a new podcast from KQED and NPR called On Our Watch, but look, which looks at how police are investigated and held accountable for misconduct in California after the passage of a California law that unsealed previously confidential internal investigations records. We're talking with Alex Emsley, a reporter for KQED News, Sandia Dirks, a race and equity reporter for KQED, and Suki Lewis, a reporter for KQED. All three are members of the On Our Watch podcast team. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you ever tried to file a complaint against a police officer? What was your experience like? And if you decided not to, why did you decide not to? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Uh, Suki, I just want to finished just talking about that initial story of the woman who came in to complain about the CHP officer, and it became very clear that he was somebody who did this repeatedly and frequently before even she came in to complain about it. What happened to that officer? So he was fired. Um, Both of the officers in this instance were fired, but they were not looked at for um, criminal violations. They weren't referred for charges to the district attorney when it appeared that, you know, there, there could possibly be criminal violations that these officers had engaged in. Um, So they are no longer police officers, neither of these officers. Um, But it kind of raises the question of, you know, why they weren't referred for charges and um, where, why they, those things weren't particularly looked at. And in the case of Officer Morgan McGrew, who was the vehicle inspection officer um, down in Los Angeles, they also limited the scope of the investigation in some ways. And so they had opened up and started sending these surveys to women about their experiences with this officer. Um, but they didn't send it to anyone under the age of 18. So if a, you know, a, a young girl had come in, say, to get her first car, you know, inspected, they weren't reaching out to those people. Um, and they also only looked at his time as a vehicle inspection officer, but he had been a CHP officer for 10 years before that as well. Um, so it just kind of raises questions about the, the depth and um ability of these, you know, this major law enforcement agency, the California Highway Patrol, which employs 7,000 officers um, across the state to really um, probe uh, deeply into these incidents of sexual misconduct. Well, Sophia tweets, listening to the recorded interrogations is infuriating, just unbelievable. Let's just hear one last bit of tape from that episode two of On Our Watch. And this is where the woman basically tells the officers how she's feeling now that she has made her complaint. Me siento muy como con miedo. She's describing that she's uh, scared. Confusa. Confused. No entiendo como. And she doesn't understand. Este departamento es. Uh, Why this department? That she's worried that we're going to protect him. There wasn't a reason for this to happen. Well, ma'am, we take uh, complaints seriously and we will fully investigate this incident. So just know that we, we, we're not going to dismiss this and think that it's no big deal. It, it's a big deal to us. Alex, Emsley, 
What has it been like to try to get these records, this kind of tape of these interrogations that occurred at a time when nobody thought they'd ever be heard by press or or the public? Well, I mean, it's been it's been a long and um, very arduous effort. Um, we, we were talking just a minute ago about how this law took effect, uh, you know, January 1st, 2019. And, and this group of journalists, we, we sent out um, the law did not just make the records available to anyone to just like get them off the Internet or whatever. You had to ask for them through filing a public records request. Um, and there is no centralized place where these are kept, uh, at least potentially the state DOJ has some of it, but it's not in any way comprehensive as far as we can tell. So we had to request these records from every one of the, we learned over 700 law enforcement agencies in California, if we wanted to try to get all of them. And Hmm. we did. Um, Just talking about these CHP records. I mean, these were, it took us over a year um, to, to really get anything of substance from the California highway patrol. That traces back to our former attorney general, Javier Becerra, and a position that he took early on when this law had taken effect, which was to basically wait and see um, whether legal challenges brought by police officers, unions, law enforcement officers, unions up and down the state would be successful to basically change significantly the impact of this law. That argument at the time was it should apply going forward, but it shouldn't apply to exactly what you say, these cases where these investigations were conducted with the presumption that they would stay secret, that the public would never know how this accountability or lack of accountability is carried out. Um, Transparency won in all of those court cases and and KQED uh, and um, our group of of journalism organizations uh, that we call the California Reporting Project. I'm just really grateful, particularly to all of the attorneys and sort of these organizations that have supported that work because this is an example to me of of, um, journalists really fighting for transparency, for public information to get to the public. And, um, you know, the the litigation is not the only thing. I mean, we sued CHP and that's what finally shook these records loose. Um, But it's also just, a massive amount of phone calling, emailing. Suki Lewis has taken the, the major burden of communicating with all of these agencies. So we try to collect uh, all of these records with the hopes that getting this stuff out there creates a better understanding of what's sort of happening as there's this spotlight on policing and serious use of force and maybe what should change. Hmm. What was the justification given for not having this be retroactive, Alex Emsley? Um, well, uh, the justification, I mean, it was, it was not um, a valid argument, according to many judges that looked at it, um, but uh, basically that the, the way that the statute was written, that, that officers' privacy rights sort of should trump uh, this new statute because they were, to use a, a sort of a loose term, grandfathered in. Um, there is a portion of the California Constitution um, that references police officer privacy um, and uh, also a fairly strong um, separate law called the uh, Peace Officers Administrative Bill of Rights. Uh, people refer to that as POBRA or Police Officers Bill of Rights. Not every state has this level of protections for officers, but California did. 
So this law was a big game changer. It kind of shook a lot of things up and it makes sense that there would be some question as to how it would be implemented. However, the argument that it shouldn't apply retroactively um, was pretty clearly not the legislature's intent and, and every court that's looked at it at this point um, has, has found the, the same, that it does apply retroactively. Meanwhile, we have well over 7,000 case files that, that we've gotten from these law enforcement agencies. So um, the cat is out of the bag. Hmm. Sandhya Dirks, what would you say is your objective with this podcast, with telling these stories as a series and why it's so important right now? We started this project, obviously, as Alex is talking about, they, uh, the California Report- Reporting Project and Suki and Alex started working on this far before uh, the summer of 2020 and the kind of resurgence of Black Lives Matter protests, which are, of course, nothing new to those of us in the Bay Area who have you know, been here over the past decade and even beyond to see protests against police violence. Um, so this, this was in many ways an attempt to kind of get a portrait of a system right we knew that what we could actually see was how the system was working and what that meant uh, on all of these levels so it was sort of deeper than just finding individual cases and the individual cases can be deeply infuriating it is it is infuriating and heartbreaking to hear a woman come in in the morning with her four-year-old and say this, you know, this police officer just propositioned me and have the officers, uh, you know, basically question her sobriety and say, are you drunk? But it's not just an individual case and it's not just these individual cases. It's what they show about the deeper system, right? As Suki was saying, it's what that case shows about the lack of criminal charges and the lack of referring for criminal charges. But it's also about then ex- not examining how these women were treated when they came forward. Um, how they were treated by other police officers and how these were kind of seen as isolated incidences. Like these officers were sort of, you know, uh, kind of tarnishing the badge. These officers were bad apples. And we hear that a lot, right? This, These are bad apples. But what you get to see when you look at the accountability system through all of these sort of piecemeal parts and put it together to kind of form a larger image is that it's not just about individual bad apples. It's about the sort of the way in which the system either protects those bad apples or sees those instances as isolated and not as allowed and perpetuated by other other aspects of, of policing. And I think what we can find is that all these things are linked and that even those who have the best intentions are are kind of culpable and complicit in this greater system. And, and finally, I, I will say that I think the the kind of other larger point is the way in which secrecy is corrosive. Um, in order to keep these records secret and to keep these things secret, um, you know, it would kind of create more and more problems, right? So the secrecy that has been sort of desired and been been pushed for by uh, by police unions and by police officers has actually led to kind of more problems and more injustices. And so what, what we hope is that by bringing these things to the light, you get some real accountability uh, journalism. And I think that Suki can talk also to the kind of the accountability part of this because we, these some of her reporting has actually changed outcomes for individual people. And let me just quickly remind listeners that you're listening to Sandia Dirks, reporter and producer for the On Our Watch podcast, which is looking at police accountability in California. Alex Emsley, a reporter for KQED News, consulting editor of On Our Watch, and Suki Lewis, host of On Our Watch. Tell us if you've ever tried to file a complaint and what your experience was like, and also what your thoughts and questions are 
about what you're hearing about police accountability. Again, 866-733-6786 is that number. 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. Let me go to caller Samuel in San Jose. Hi, Samuel. Hi, Samuel. Are you there? Well, while we try to connect with Samuel, Martha writes, these investigations reveal that the police do not seem to have the mindset to be part of the solution to police misconduct. The abuse of power of the badge is so disheartening, especially to women. Suki Lewis, how many cops would you say you talk to for your series? Oh, um, interesting question. I probably between current police officers and former police officers, police chiefs, um, people in policing, not even just in California, uh, probably a dozen. A dozen or so. Yeah. And I, I guess as Sandia is talking about the system, I wonder how you think about the culpability of each of these ind individual officers. Um, I mean, obviously, for individual actions, they're culpable for their individual actions um, in, in terms of, you know, what they choose to do and, and if they, you know, have the mindset to abuse their power. Um, but I think, you know, again, going back to the system, what's been really interesting to see is the lack of standardization. Like, as Alex mentioned, there's about 700 different uh, employers of, you know, peace officers across the state of California. And there just isn't a uniform system for addressing misconduct, for looking at misconduct, for disciplining officers. And even police officers will um, kind of complain about this and say, like, it, it, isn't, it isn't uniform. Um, and sometimes it isn't fair, they feel. Um, and it really comes down to, like, the culture of the department where you, you know, work, if you're a police officer, what the, you know, what the chief's goals are, but also like the city's aims, which, you know, they are oftentimes kind of looking to limit liability for incidents. And so this kind of pressure for secrecy um, isn't just, you know, on an individual police officer who doesn't want their misconduct to come out. It's kind of pervasive throughout and even all the way up through kind of district attorneys, right, who rely on the word of police officers to make their cases. And so I think it's like in interrogating why we kind of allow that system to, to keep itself so kind of secret and not transparent to the public when it's supposed to work for us, right? I want to dig into the episode that that dropped today. Uh, this is an episode that presents a very disturbing story of a teenager who was beaten by a police officer. Sandhya, I think you reported this episode. Could you give us some background on it? Yeah, so the story uh, actually goes back to 2011 um, and a, a, a day in January where a 16-year-old uh, black kid in Stockton uh, goes in to buy some gummy uh, worms or bears, I'm going to get that wrong, gummy worms for his uh, for his little sister uh, at a gas station. Um, and he uh, is trying to pay for these with a, a damaged dollar bill. And there's a, a plain clothes police officer in line behind him. He doesn't know he's a police officer. He's wearing normal clothes uh, who kind of gets involved in this altercation, uh, ends up, you know, grabbing uh, the 16 year old, pulling him back in the store and um, sort of they end up on the ground. Uh, he ends up punching the kid and uh, the kid loses his front teeth. Hmm. Um, it's this it's this incident that actually has a lot of 
there's video of it. It doesn't have audio, but there's this video of it that's very powerful. Um, it's a, it feels very violent when you're watching it. And it, it's actually really has these moments where it reminds you of, of other cases in the news. I think several people have commented that when you watch this, you kind of can't help but think of George Floyd. There's a few reasons for that. One is the way this police officer sort of um, has his knee and it's unclear it's on the, whether it's in the neck or the, or the back of um, the top of the back, but has his knee there, the way that it happens at this gas station convenience store. And finally, the fact that everyone, all the witnesses, um, including the police officer, talk about how this 16 year old was calling out for his mother. Um, and just crying out for his mother during this entire ordeal, um, who was actually there in, in the store while this was happening. So you have this incident that didn't get a lot of, of press at the time. There are many reasons for that. It's hard to ever say why one police shooting uh, becomes a, a sort of a national light, lightning rod and why others don't. But in this case, you know, this, this young man, Joseph Green, did not die right? He survived. He lost his teeth. He was, uh, he, he says he was traumatized afterwards, that he had, you know, terrible nightmares and is still afraid of, of police officers, police officers to this day. But what's really kind of troubling about this story is what happens after um, uh, that in, in that the officer seems to tell a story that contradicts what's on the video mm. and that he seems to, in many ways, get away with a lot of those lies. And that in the interrogation, this is this white police officer in the black part of Stockton, and he's, you know, aggressively treating a 16-year-old black kid, saying that he looks like an adult, saying that he thinks he's a drug dealer, saying that he was violent, using all of these cliches, which we know to be racist cliches. Um, he He's never really asked about the racial bias aspect. And so what we kind of began to understand looking at this case and looking at other cases is that the, the IA process in many, many places does not really have a kind of mechanism to interrogate racial bias. So while explicit racial you know, racism, you know, whether that's cases of racist text messages or white supremacist tattoos, maybe there's a way to deal with that. But Racial bias, which is this huge issue we know. We know in California that uh, Black people are uh, uh, used force on. They are, are killed more. They are injured more. And yet there's no necessary mechanism to actually look at whether or not uh, officers have racial bias in their interactions with Black people. Well, we have a clip from that episode that we will play right after the break that describes the interrogation or that reveals the interrogation uh, and the different versions of this interrogation, basically the different versions of the story that the police officer and 16-year-old Joseph Green are telling. We'll have more talking about On Our Watch, the podcast that's looking at how police misconduct is handled in California right after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here is episode four from On Our Watch, a clip from that episode, which presents a disturbing story of a teenager who was beaten by a police officer so badly 
that he lost several teeth. There are two stories of what happened back on that rainy day at the California Stop gas station as 16-year-old Joseph Green is walking out of the store. Once I pull him in the store, he turns and faces me and grabs me up, you know, up on my shirt, up by my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he grabbed me, I reached up and grabbed him. In the story that Officer Johnson tells Internal Affairs, Joe Green is a violent adult who fights back as they scuffle. So we kind of are holding each other's shirts, struggling, pulling back and forth, pushing, pulling. And I'm trying to get him away from the front door. And then there's the story that Joe Green tells, where he's surprised by this man standing in line behind him. I've never even touched an Officer Johnson, not once. He never pushed him, never pushed him. I couldn't push him if I'm walking out the door like this and he'd come up and grab me by my hair. He pushed me uh, backwards into a uh, shelf. We both go down face first into the uh, linoleum or, or tile or whatever kind of floor it is, but he goes face down. I trip and fall. Uh, we both go to the ground. Johnson pins Green face down with his knee. His knee is in my, like, damn near my neck back, like right here. So he's on top of me. Police reports show Officer Johnson weighed about 215 pounds, Joe Green about 150. Green says Johnson started punching him in the face. I'm telling you, this man was punching me like he was angry about something. Like, like I'm telling you, like, really, like he was angry. Where he punched you at? In my face, all, all right here, my nose and my mouth, and my mouth, and he just kept punching me all right here until my teeth came out of my mouth. I feel like it's important to remind listeners here that um, essentially what happened was that a young man was trying to buy something with a torn dollar bill. The clerk did not want to accept a torn dollar bill, didn't call the police, but there was a plainclothes police officer in the gas station convenience store who then proceeds to do what you hear being described in this clip, grabbing the kid, putting his knee in the back of the kid and then turning the kid over and punching him in the face. And Sandia Dirks, I mean, let's just fast forward years later. Ultimately, ultimately, the family is able to get a settlement in a civil trial. Can you say what the judge deemed happened? Um, or at least what what was sort of finally determined that this officer did that was wrong? So it's the jury that kind of makes the decision right in a civil trial. And their verdict was that it was uh, not only excessive force, but also a false arrest. Um, And that has to do with the fact that Joe Green didn't this this kid didn't actually, you know, they believe that he didn't know that uh, this officer was a police officer when he grabbed him and that he was, in in fact, leaving the store. Right. You know, the, the officer told him to just leave. And Joe Green did leave. It was the officer who pulled him back in. What One of the things that this episode really gets at um, is who is believed. And I think this is something that many of our episodes really take on. Um, who gets believed in these interrogation rooms? And when you have, uh, you know, police officers who are, in, you know, doing the, doing these interrogations, the... Uh, the kind of the tendency is often to believe the police officer's story. Um, in this case, actually, the Stockton Police Department did find that uh, that Officer Johnson, the officer involved in this case, had used excessive force. 
They didn't find that he had used false arrest and they kind of didn't confront him on many of the gaps between his story and the story that was shown on the video, uh, including one where he may have moved baskets to make it look like he had accidentally fallen over when, in fact, uh, Joe Green says that he pushed him to the ground. But they did find that he had used excessive force. They found that those punches to the face were excessive and they gave him a five days unpaid suspension. But that was overturned by an arbitrator because one one of the other protections that police unions have fought for and won in California is uh, is binding arbitration, which is a sort of a final decision that no police chief can overturn. So it was the arbitrator who ultimately found that Joseph that uh, that that. Uh, Officer Johnson had not used excessive force, that he had feared for his life, um, in part because the neighborhood was a scary uh, neighborhood with a HUD housing development. That was one of the reasons that was used to show why the officer was afraid. Um, and, in, you know, in the end, Officer Johnson goes back, uh, you know, to work. He does not face dis discipline. And in 2018, uh, a club awarded him Officer of the Year. And he is still on the force? He is still on the force, yes. One of the things that you pointed out just before the break was part of the reason you wanted to tell the story was to show how internal affairs investigations try to get at racism as a factor in incidents, because the jury in the civil trial did declare that they felt that Johnson had acted, the officer had acted with malice. What did you learn about the effectiveness of IA investigations in trying to get at that? This is a really hard thing to look at because racial bias is very difficult to kind of capture, right? And for those that experience racism, you know it, right? You understand it the moment that it happens. But that is not always necessarily true. Um, and it's not always necessarily true when you have police officers investigating or interrogating in these cases. Um, one of the people that we talked to for this story is a former, uh, is, is this guy named Frederick Cotto, who was a, a sergeant, an internal affairs sergeant in San Jose. Uh, he retired from that position um, and now writes a television show uh, in Hollywood called The Rookie. But uh, he he is a black uh, was a black internal affairs uh, sergeant. And he told us that this mechanism just it, it didn't exist, that you that it was very difficult to get at these things. Right. And that's in part because uh, for there can be this slipperiness around race and what is race and what is racism. We know this from the national dialogue that becomes even more heightened and charged when it happens inside of an interrogation room. And there are, you know, there is this thing, there is this idea that if you have reasonable fear, right, you, a police officer is, you know, is allowed to kind of act on that reasonable fear. But the issue is, if that fear is of Black people, of Brown people, of Indigenous people, what does that mean about what is allowed? So it becomes incredibly slippery, um, the way in which protections and sort of policies and laws protect police use of force, and how that might actually codify or kind of embed systemic racism with in the system of policing. Um, so it's, it's very hard to unpack, but I think it's really important to look at because if we can't talk about race and policing within the accountability system, how can we ever address race and policing as we see it that is happening um, and that is being talked about in, in societies at large? Hmm. Let's go to Samuel in San Jose. Thanks, Samuel. Um, I believe we have you right. back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm like waiting for you guys to ask questions, I guess. Or I, well, I'm not sure. I'm at the dentist right now, but 
you wanted to tell a story. Yeah. You wanted to tell a story about whether you filed a complaint or you didn't in a situation. Can you tell us what happened? Yes. Uh, It was 2018, the summer, so it was before Corona, all the riots and stuff. And I'm in South San Jose, and it was actually in Sunnyvale, and a police officer approaches me and my friend, and we're outside of, um, of of a strip club. And it's not not a lot of people, not too late, but he comes and approaches us and asks if we were smoking marijuana. And we weren't. Um, we I think we had cigarettes or something, but he says, yeah, I smell marijuana. Like, I'm just investigating. And I was really polite with the officer, everything. Long story short, um, they end up arresting me because I wouldn't show ID. And... It wasn't the initial officer making the report. They, they they actually called backup. And while I'm going back and forth with the officer saying, I, I don't think I have to show ID if there's no crime committed. Like, you didn't see us smoking marijuana and we weren't smoking marijuana. It could be anyone. You could smell it from across the fence. Like, quote, unquote, I smell marijuana. I was like, well, do you see us having marijuana? I don't think this um, constitutes a, a, a legal detention or anything. And had he said that, like, the tact of this officer was horrible because I was very polite, very polite with him the whole time. And he was he was just being very forceful and aggressive with um, his demands. Did you end up filing uh, a complaint? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. It was crazy. The, The lieutenant came on scene. There was like six cop cars. And initially, when they had tackled me down to the ground, to arrest me had they have just said like hey we're going to oh. detain you if you don't show id i would have done i would have done it i was like oh okay you gave me the ultimatum i don't want any problems officer so so i'll show you my id but it, they never they never um approached it like that they never gave me that choice when backup came my friend said that the guy was putting his gloves on and he already knew he was about to get me and i didn't even really see him and he just tackled me his backup came and just tackled me down to the ground um, and I'm I really, put my yeah. hands to the side. Yes, yeah, in Sunnyvale, 2018. I'm sorry. I put my hands down to the side, and um, they, they, they pulled the the bigger one. And I'm, by the way, I'm five. I'm like five eleven, one sixty. If I'm soaking wet, like I'm a light dude. Like, <laughs> like I'm a real light dude. Um, especially back then too. So I I gave no resistance. All I did was keep my hands to my waist because I didn't want to be handcuffed. And I said, get off of me, get off of me. And the two officers were putting their knees on me and whatnot. And the bigger officer that came through, he pulled my arm and twisted it, ended up having like a convulsion in my elbow, had to be rushed to the hospital that night, um, handcuffed to the bed. And even the EMTs were saying when they were hooking me up in the ambulance and shut the door, they said, yeah, the police out here, they always do this. They arrest people for no reason. But why would an EMT be telling us that like, so the cops are really beating these people up if they show any resistance my only resistance was not showing id and and there was no crime committed really i mean you smell marijuana outside who doesn't in california these days or back then even yes can i ask you why Why i didn't didn't? Yeah. yeah because i didn't feel like it was it was worth it i guess like i don't i don't know my my elbow wasn't too badly messed up um yeah Actually, and I still might if I get charged for the ambulance, <laughs> or if they charge me for the ambulance. That's the only reason I would sue is if mm. I had to pay the ambulance fee. Um, well, Samuel, they, they, I, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that I'm I'm really sorry that that happened, and and 
It makes me wonder, Suki Lewis, what do you feel like is the connection between the way misconduct cases are handled and the kinds of tensions that exist between officers and the communities that they police? Well, I think, you know, in, you know, police, it's, it goes down to training as well for police officers, right? They're trained to gain compliance. And so they often go into a situation kind of, you know, on high alert with the mindset of there's a potential threat here. I need everyone to do exactly as I say, so that I can ensure officer safety and whatever. But there is also this kind of authority, <laughs> um, presumed authority that comes with that. And, you know, it get in, in this episode that's out right now, we get into kind of this contempt of cop, right? Where it's like the person isn't doing anything necessarily illegal, but they aren't respecting that authority. They're not just kind of going along with the program. Um, and so then sometimes some officers, especially ones who are more aggressive, will kind of want to go the next level, right? And exert that authority and kind of show who's boss in the situation and show that they can't be, you know, trifled with. Um, and so I think that's where you kind of get into these situations where, you know, people in, in the community don't feel that they are being respected and cops don't feel like they are being respected. And um, it can lead to, you know, further, further uh, kind of unwillingness to follow the orders of police officers because they are, feel that they're being abused. And then further um, kind of aggression on the part of police officers who are like, oh, we're in a dangerous situation and we've got to kind of be even more um, aggressive and extreme to exert our authority. Um, and I think that the failures of oversight and accountability are adjusting for that on the police side. So there's a lot of talk about like kind of community conversations and like what the community can do to better understand police officers. But where is the understanding in, in policing of, and, and not to say that it doesn't happen, but the kind of understanding of how can we uh, adjust our tone in these conversations? Maybe there isn't a need to uh, kind of gain compliance at all costs, you know, maybe there are different ways to deal with this, or, you know, actual accountability for, for over aggression and mm -hmm. for excessive use of force to kind of nip that in the bud and not have it be a kind of programmatic training thing that is just expected. Suki Lewis, host of the On Our Watch podcast, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Alex, I'm a similar question to you, but do you feel like the transparency of misconduct cases now, that, uh, that they do have the potential to improve the relations between community, community members and police officers to try to get at some of the, the issues that Suki just described? I, I do. And I think it's complicated and, and nuanced and will probably take time. But I think, you know, I think Sandia referenced earlier the, the sort of the corrosive power of secrecy. If there is a bunch of information out there that you just don't get to know, nothing to see here, I have always felt like that erodes trusts and, um, you know, inhibits a sort of a shared understanding. I want to add that um, policing, police officers are not monolithic. This is a complicated job uh and um there are different approaches to it and you know some of the a lot of the people that we 
have interviewed um, for for on our watch are uh, police officers, internal and some internal affairs sergeants, some people yes. who really are trying to, um, you know, it, uh, uphold sort of the highest nobility of this profession and who are holding other officers accountable in very difficult uh, situations. So, I mean, I just think that there is, um, you know, there are a lot of different approaches. There are a lot of different people who are working on this, but as you get to that systemic level, criminal accountability, we've seen across the board. This is CHP cases. This is uh, other law enforcement agencies as well. There is a major reticence for officers who have committed pretty clear, or it looks like potentially criminal misconduct. Those, those cases don't make it to criminal charges more often than it seems like they should. And again, that is a double standard. That is, if you're a, a, a regular a citizen who is not a police officer, you are found to have committed a crime, it is very likely that you are going to be charged and shuttled through the criminal justice system. If you are a police officer, it seems like that is less likely. That is what we are finding here. And part of that, I think, is, is if a criminal charge is filed, that is a way that the public can know that that information gets out into the public. And so by avoiding criminal charges before this transparency law was in effect, agencies, cities, and officers could avoid people knowing about what happened. Alex, we have about 30 seconds left, but I want to ask you, so NPR got involved in this podcast. These are stories about California. What do you think these stories about California can tell about what the rest of the nation is facing? Why NPR felt like this was really had national relevance? Um, I, I think California has, um, you know, I, I hesitate to say something that I don't know, but a large number of peace officers, potentially the most of any other state. Um, we have, uh, this state has had um, a, the highest rate of uh, police shootings and killings for, for many years. Um, in a lot of ways, I think California is an indicator of how policing is conducted in other parts of the country. And because we have this particular special situation where we can see how policing in this state, um, particularly accountability around misconduct and investigations into serious uses of force, um, were conducted when it was expected that no one would ever see it. I think that is a very unique and important thing um, that people can learn and apply to policing all across the country. Alex Emsley, Sandia Dirk, Suki Lewis, congratulations on On Our Watch. Episodes drop every Thursday. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.